Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of Watershed Lit. We're celebrating 23 years of the Fall for the Book Festival by sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to visit fallforthebook.org to find out more about our virtual festival. So Susie, I wanted to ask you about writing place and if there are particular uh, places around the world that you focus your writing. I know you've done um, a lot of traveling too and if that impacts what you're writing. It definitely does impact it. Um, I would say the two biggest places that I write about are in Maine. Um, we have family up there and I spend a lot of time, um, by the ocean and just everything about that, the water, the smell, everything just seems to seep into, um, a lot of my writing. And then I've also spent a couple of weeks in, in St. Petersburg, Russia, doing some research for a book. And I just find that it's hard for me to write about the place while I'm in the place. So what I end up doing is just taking a bunch of notes. It's like, what are the smells? What are the sounds? What are the little, um, you know, asyncrasies that I'm going to think about later, but I cannot just like sit down and write a whole, <laughs> a whole piece about it. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that, that's really interesting when, you know, even though you, you're going to a place specifically for book research and, and to write about it, that you can't actually do any of that writing while you're there. That, that's, that, that ends up coming after. I think that's really interesting. I, so much of what I write isn't really uh, focused on a particular place, but when I do write about place, I feel like I, I'm always going back to where I grew up in Ohio when I haven't lived there for, I think like over 10 years now, but whenever I'm, uh, I am writing about place, I, I always feel like I start off with like this blueprint of the place I grew up in. And then I start changing details from there. It's just, it's so automatic for me. Yeah, a lot of your writing is some of my favorite of your pieces are like in space or under the <laughs> sea or all of these really great locations. So I guess since those are, of course, real locations, but not places you've been, um, how are, do you approach place differently than, you know, writing about Ohio where you have like a, a blueprint, places that you've been, things that you've seen? And I think so much of, of, of that comes just from like purely from imagination and um and then from other things that you've read other things that you've you've seen and watched I I, I know when when you know when I'm writing something about you know if, if I'm writing something that's set like in outer space I can never get like the real images of the, of the moon landing out of my mind that's always something that's just like right there for me I mean it's easy when you're in space to distance yourself from reality you can have that as as the basis but one of the challenges I mean you mentioned in Ohio making all of those very um conscious decisions to change things and that's one of the struggles when I'm writing about places that I've been or you know you know but it's really hard to distance yourself from reality but often that's what you have to do otherwise it just is boring or I find I have to approach it in different ways um you know I, I wrote a, a piece set in Maine that Maine is its own character, but it also deals with a lot of issues like dementia and stuff like that. And the only way I could write the place was to step back and do kind of like weird formal things like writing a list based on colors of things that I saw and, and all of those different things because the topic was too difficult and it was so linked with the place. There's really something about like having some distance from a place that gives you a different perspective on it and maybe a perspective that you need in order to to write about it. I think that's something we're going to talk about with, um, with, with Jesse and Beth who are on the podcast today. And I'm really excited to hear what they have to say about it because uh, both of them do write quite a bit about, about place in their work. Well, we're really excited today to be talking with Jesse DeLong and Beth Gilstrap. 
Jesse DeLong is the author of The Amateur Scientist Notebook, published by Baobab Press. He grew up in northern Idaho and western Montana and currently teaches composition and literature at LSU. Beth Gilstrap is the author of Deadheading and Other Stories and I Am Barbarella. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with a house full of critters. Jesse and Beth, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. So Susie and I were talking a little bit about um, writing place in looking at both of your um, uh, both of your books. I, I, so I wanted to start off with asking, where are you both from and, and where do you live now? Actually, I just recently moved to Louisville and this is the first time I've ever lived outside of the Carolinas. So I was born and raised in the Charlotte metro area. I lived there most of my life. I moved a little bit east to Union County, which is which when I lived there was a more rural area with my mom and brother. And then I lived in Raleigh for a bit. And then I lived in like a suburb called Rock Hill, um, which is a whole bunch of nothing. And then I moved to Louisville, but mostly the Carolinas is, is where I'm from. Yeah, I grew up in northern Idaho in western Montana. I lived there for the first uh, like 23 or 24 years of my life. Um, and then I moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama um, when I went to the University of Alabama for graduate school. And now I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've lived in the south for like a little over 10 years now. So grew up sort of up north, up near Canada. And now I live sort of down south. Beth, we're going to start with you about how place influences your writing. And of course, in, in deadheading, the Carolinas are just everywhere in it. Can you talk a little bit about how your, your upbringing or your time in, in the Carolinas, how has that influenced your writing? There's no way to separate me or my point of view or my lens from the Carolinas. Um, my family, I just recently started doing research into like the sort of ancestry stuff. And apparently my family goes back on both sides to like Appalachia pre-revolutionary war. Um, and, you know, they were all just dirt poor farmers and then eventually mill workers. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of generational stuff that you inherit. You know, I'm fascinated by the stories about genetic memory, how when you're in your mother's womb, you have access or, or it's sort of imprinted on you. I, I can't remember the exact wording on that, but it's imprinted on you, all of her experience and then all of, of your grandmother's experience too, which is fascinating to me. So that's where I get into the, the science side of things. But yeah, I mean, there's just no way to separate myself from it. I, I grew up on the porch and it sounds so cliche, like snapping beans with my grandparents and listening to, and they each had, my maternal grandparents each had six siblings. So it was just little quiet me sitting there just doing what I was told, snapping beans, listening to their crazy stories. So that's how. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to separate uh, consciousness from sort of where you grew up. And for people of the West, I think, or the Northwest where I grew up, it's hard to separate your consciousness from the landscape. Though this book sort of heavily invests in the details of where I grew up from in Idaho and Montana. And, you know, it's an area where this, the West has sort of been 
devastated by sort of different environmental disasters and mining and stuff like that. And it's also a landscape of sort of harsh winters and um, that stuff sort of shapes your worldview and how you deal with your relationships with people and stuff like that. I think that's true. And I, since I've only recently moved out of the Carolinas, um, it's very interesting to see just how different things are, even to Louisville, because to me, this feels more Midwestern. They call it Mid-South. Some people here hate it being associated with the South. Some people hate it being associated um, with the Midwest. But, you know, the sky is bigger here. The land is flatter. I'm a mile from the Ohio River, and that affects everything. Like the wind comes in and the, the weather changes much more rapidly here. And also, I never realized just how much the hurricanes um, affected everything where I was in North Carolina, because um, Charlotte is central south North Carolina, and you get all the remnants. So it's like storming every day there. And there was one thunderstorm here this whole spring and summer so far. And I was like, oh, that's just bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, I was telling um, the editors of the press when we were first talking about the book that the voice in the Amateur Scientist Notebook is probably a voice I don't have access to anymore. And I think it's because I sort of don't live in that area anymore. And I'm living in sort of a, a climate that's a 180. It's really hot in the summers here. And there are mild winters. And up in Idaho and Montana, it's really temperate in the summers. And there's really harsh winters. And I think, think that sort of up in the north, those that climate sort of gave me a sort of a more lyric voice that I really don't have access to anymore. I think it's so interesting to hear you guys talk about the idea of how a landscape influences your consciousness so, so much, uh, because you, know, you can talk about a lot of different ways in which place shows up in writing, but so much of, of what's in both of your books is this connection to nature. So there, there's a connection between nature and, and human consciousness that's really tightly interwoven throughout these pieces. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about your relationship to nature and how that's reflected in your work. Jesse, I'm thinking about a piece like structural setting of bird and phosphor, where we start with the landscape and then we're suddenly like talking about Freud and philosophy and human relationships. Yeah, I think that sometimes when, you, when you're growing up around a lot of decay and a lot of sort of environmental devastation, which leads to sort of economic devastation. I think that a lot of times it'll affect sort of the relationships that you have with people. So in that sort of piece, I wanted to sort of talk about how the relationship was in a sort of a state of decay that was kind of mirroring the economic devastation and the environmental devastation that was happening around sort of the mining situation there and, and sort of the sort of decaying landscape around Northern Idaho and Montana. And Beth, a couple of the stories that that this kind of stuck out for me it, in your collection are like earth eating as suppression or a little arithmetic blip. Just those those places where you can kind of like really see this connection between the human emotions and nature. Yeah. So um, earth eating as suppression, I, I really wanted to start the book with that one because and, and this is family lore as well as uh, research, particularly in North Carolina for ages and ages, eating dirt was like a, an actual thing. Um, and people believed in, in the folklore and the folktales that um, it 
it gave you the the energy from the land. And then there's also a, a scientific explanation about it that I learned. Um, and that is that there was a massive, like in the depression, I believe, if I'm remembering right, there was a massive like ringworm situation happening because of poverty, of course. And it is somehow related to that. And um, it's almost like a pica, like it, it makes you crave certain types of things and and it's just all bound up in all this weird lore um and then the poverty aspect of it so and I feel like I can't escape the south no matter what I I want to do no matter how much I want to so like um when I first went to my MFA program um I did a low residency at Chatham in Pittsburgh I was the only person not from the Northeast, I believe, in that first workshop. And I didn't want to be put in a box. I didn't want to, you know, be labeled a Southern writer or whatever that means, because to me, it had negative connotations. I've been in a lot of rooms where, uh, you know, people assume because of the way I talk, the way I sound, where I'm from, that, that I have no intelligence whatsoever. So I wanted to kind of get away from that. But immediately everyone in the room was like but you're so southern <laughs> um so i guess you know my my work is is to figure out what that means and it's it's tied to the landscape and um a little arrhythmic blip she's one of my favorites and it comes from a place of grief and i have i live with mental illness i have chronic post traumatic stress disorder and all the depression and anxiety and compulsive thoughts that go with that. Um, so you can see that reflected in that character who finds solace in nature. And it's really, it, it kind of mirrors me because really it's the only comfort I feel is when I'm out um, in my garden and I've been gardening since I was like five. So when I'm out in my garden, when I'm out walking next to the river or what have you. I would say I really felt that with Layla in deadheading. There are some really some some really wonderful lines when she's out in the woods. And of course, all the the way she seeks solace in nature, of course, with her with her husband. Jesse, I, I want to just go back to something that you had said before about how you feel like you don't have access to that same voice anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel like your voice has changed now that you are based in the in the South? Um, I think it's a sort of a less lyric voice. Um, I think that when I was growing up in Idaho and Montana, I was living sort of, well, mostly when I was growing up in Idaho, I was living in sort of Sagal, Idaho, and we were tucked right up against the mountains. Um, and so a lot of my childhood was spent just sort of outside wandering around in the mountains and the, um, all the nature that's up there. And sort of, I think that developed early on sort of a very lyric voice that was centered in sort of concrete details um, sensory details and stuff like that. And as I've sort of lived away from that area for a long time and lived in an area in the South that I didn't grow up in. And so I don't have those sort of, um, community and generational connections that I used to, my voice has now moved, um, sort of less lyric, maybe more abstract and not as much sensory details as it used to have. That's really interesting. And I, and I wanted to ask you both about these details and Beth, in, in a previous interview, you mentioned that two of your teachers told you to look for luminous details rather than every detail. And I think that's really um, clear in both of your works. And so 
Beth, let's start with you. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how you find these detail, details and how you nurture them? And then Jesse, I'm really interested in, in what you have to say on this, especially since things have changed so much for you. For me, um, you know, I, I find a lot of details on my walks um, and it's a huge part of my process. I believe Laurie Jaquila was the teacher who originally introduced the idea of the luminous detail to me. And that is, you know, and, and as an early writer, you know, I, I prose writer, I should say, not poet, as an early prose writer, I would put in every detail. Um, you know, it was almost like Charles Dickens, you know, you describe a spoon for five pages, but the reader doesn't need that. And as you work on shorter forms, um, particularly flash poetry, prose poetry, those type of things. It's, it's what resonates with you emotionally and, and what can translate to the reader that way. And in Still Soft, Still Whole, there's an incident with a snake. And that incident came from real life. Um, now, the snake lived in real life, but um, you know, it, it's, it's things that horrify me. It's things that inspire me. It's paying attention when you're out in the world. And, and that's how I find it. It's, but you know, whether or not it's going to resonate with readers, you don't know. Um, it's really things that resonate with me. And that I don't really know why or where that comes from. Maybe we can, we can chalk that up to a, a higher power of some sort. Um, and, you know, nature is my higher power. I think that um, the details for me are different depending on sort of what I'm trying to do in any particular poem. So some of the poems, sort of the, the details are just sort of um, whatever visual details will then also sonically match the lyricness of the line. And so I'll try and match those up. Um, in other parts of the book, I sort of I, what I was doing when I was writing the book was I was sometimes taking different scientific charts that I found. So occurrence of phosphorus intermediate in florets is one of those. And I took that chart and I used sort of the words that were in the chart and then try to sort of repetition those details on through. Um, so sometimes when I'm, when I'm adapting a form or when I'm appropriating a form from another uh, medium, then I'll sort of use the details from that form. And then other times I'll try and take those sort of visual details and have them sonically match the line. I actually was, I was really thinking quite a lot about, about form with, with both of, uh, with both of your work and because you both do experiment with form quite a bit. And I was curious how you ended up settling on structure for a poem or a story. Uh, like Jesse, you're talking about these particular kind of scientific charts. You also have a field guide. Mm hmm yeah, so some of the poems in the book, like I said, I was taking, I was just doing some sort of some research and taking different scientific charts and stuff like that and turning those into forms. For the form of the entire book, I wanted it to sort of mimic sort of the sunflower head. So a sunflower head is made up of the larger flower, but then also the smaller little composite floret flowers that then make up the whole piece. So I wanted the smaller poems in the whole book to be sort of those composite flowers that they're, they're their own individual thing, but they also make up the larger composite head. I love that, the, the sunflower as a structure. That's, that's really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. And Beth, you talked a little bit about um, how you do um, kind of different variations on form, even within prose, like flash fiction versus a longer short story. And I know you use second person sometimes. So if you could talk about uh, 
form in that way. I feel like we don't talk about form for short stories quite as much as with poetry, but there's, there's really is so much there. You know, I don't always, particularly with longer short stories, I don't always have a particular form in mind. I generally follow an image and whatever that image is usually contributes to the form. Um, so for, um, for a blaze of sight, for instance, we have this character who is is grieving and has a huge trauma, um, and she winds up getting drawn into like, these weird documentaries on the History Channel, and then she gets obsessed with making crop circles. So, <laughs> like in her backyard, crop circles. So I did a lot of research on fractals at that time and on horseshoe crabs. And so I love the idea of those repeated patterns and fractals, like the, the never ending repeated um, pattern. And that is something that occurs in nature quite a bit. So I, I wanted to kind of explore that. And I think the story, an intuitive way kind of mirrored that. Um, and but it wasn't something I really did consciously and I worked on it further in revision. I was like, OK, so let's play with this a little bit um, with flash fiction. I think it's much easier to apply forms and I love borrowed forms in flash fiction. Um, so I've I've actually since finishing that book, I've actually started to lean into that a little bit more. But yeah, um, I do love borrowed forms like the how to lists um, and things like that. Um, like KB Carl does a, a beautiful job with those. She has one that's um, made out of a, a crossword puzzle and it's just really, really cool. Vagabond Mannequin, I teach that one. Yes, I love Great. it. I'm glad that you brought up fractals because I was thinking about fractals a lot when I was um, writing this book, sort of the way that fractals will sort of spiral in on themselves but then be sort of like smaller duplications of themselves. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious in, in putting together both of these books, I mean, we're talking about form of the individual and then Jesse, you're also broadening out to the form of the piece as a, as a sunflower um, and the florets within the sunflower. Did that inform how you chose the poems to go in this piece? Did you write the poems specifically for the amateur scientist notebook? How, how did you build this collection? Yeah, all of the poems for this was sort of like what you would I guess would call a project manuscript. Like it wasn't a bunch of individual poems that were written with different ideas. I had a sort of idea in mind. I had initially thought that it would just be one large longer poem that I would write when I started out. But then as I was writing and I started seeing that different parts of this longer poem were also their own individual poems was still part of the larger book as a whole. So I went about it in that way. That's so interesting. I'm always so curious how collections are put together. I'm, and, and Beth, I'm curious with your collection, you said you wanted to start with earth eating as suppression and you end with deadheading. How did you structure this collection? How did you figure out what goes in, what doesn't in the order? For me, it's, it's really a puzzle that I'm, I'm working out the whole time. These stories are interconnected and to me, it creates sort of a mosaic effect, which I really love. And again, it's not in the early drafting. It's not really something I do consciously. It's that a, a voice won't leave me alone. So you think you're finished with it. And then it's like, oh, no, no. Hello. I'm still here. You're not done. Um, but as far as arranging it, um, it's, it's really just about the puzzle of it. 
I wanted to start with that sort of inescapable consuming of the literal earth of the South. Like, you know, you're, you're eating this land, whether you want to or not. And deadheading, I, I wanted to end there because I felt so connected to Layla um, from Still Soft, Still Whole to um, deadheading. And I felt like it ended, the book gets into some pretty dark stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's got that tinge of Southern Gothicism, which is also very nature inspired. But I, I wanted to end there because I believe despite the tragedy that Layla goes through, it ends on a hopeful note. And to me, nature is, is redemption and, and she's connecting there and, and it ends with a place of hope. I love that thinking about um, both, you know, these, these images of nature, like fractals and, um, and even thinking visually like about a mosaic as well. And, and, and coming around to the, this idea of, uh, of the redemptive quality of nature. It's been really great talking with both of you. Thank you both so much for, for joining us today. Thank you again for having me. Oh, thank you for having me too. And, and I, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that image of the sunflower as structure in the back of my head. So, you know, when writers get together, we, we influence each other, whether or not we, we do it intentionally. So I think that's, that's a pretty cool thing to take with me. Well, I'll still be thinking about the fractal and I'll, I'll think about eating some dirt as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both again. Thank you. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.